Hello and welcome to Byline Radio. This is What the Papers Don't Say with me, Adrian Goldberg. Today, Russian disinformation and how the West propped up Putin. We'll be joined by Byline Times co-founder and executive editor Peter Jukes and Idris Ahmed on Russia's information blitz in both Ukraine and Syria, which involves using social media influencers pushing his message. We are truly in the era of the TikTok war. Before we get cracking, just a reminder that Byline Radio comes from the Byline Times and were funded by ordinary people like you. To support us, please take out a subscription to Byline Times. You'll get a great monthly newspaper. You'll be supporting Byline TV, the Byline Times podcast, where this show is rebroadcast, Byline Radio, and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com, which you may also be listening to this on as well. We'd also welcome your contributions too. If you're listening on the phone in the bottom left-hand of your screen, you should see a little microphone icon. Uh, Just tap that to join if you've got a question to ask or if you want to join in, by all means, do so. Uh, Latest print edition of Byline Times is out now and it's got the catch-all title, Russian Disinformation and How the West Propped Up Putin. We'll speak to Peter Jukes, the Byline Times executive editor, about that now. But I'm really intrigued by this idea of the TikTok war. So let's get a word now with Idris Ahmed. Idris is a, a freelance journalist and broadcaster. Idris, hello. Welcome to Byline Radio. How are you doing? Hello, Idris. Yeah, good to join you. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, um, I hope you can hear me now. Yeah, I got your land clear now, Idris. Yeah, go on. Okay, so that's great. So yeah, I, I think uh, one of the things that had been happening for not just right now, but for a few months was uh, as there was more of a crackdown on um, the various social media media platforms um, and Russian propaganda uh, outlets being labeled because there were many of them, uh, you know, we, we recognize Russia Today and Sputnik. But they had set up these various fronts, which initially uh, many people just assumed were um, just progressive outlets. Um, uh, one of them actually became viral recently. One of some stories they put out just as the invasion started. Um, um, one of them is quite active, called Soapbox. So, um, but they started becoming identified and they're labeled by the social media platforms. So the one pl- one place which uh, was uh, um, under the radar was TikTok. So a lot of attention started being paid to TikTok and um, a lot of propaganda being started, uh, started being put out through TikTok and also it has a younger audience. So it's a way of seeding disinformation, um, which you know eventually then percolates uh, up. So um, that was working rather well, and uh, but there was recently pressure on TikTok, so they have also take to uh, have had to take measures. But in Russia, um, recently, what um, the the regime has done is uh, get all these influencers, and it's a very clearly scripted message they have been given because um, um, they are speaking um, uh, the same words in support of the war so i think that so so idri sorry yeah. to interrupt you but yeah. just give us a sense then of, of what happens on tiktok or how putin or supporters of the invasion of ukraine have been trying to influence young people well it's it's just you find, i mean the, the key thing is that you have uh, tiktok 
young people have uh, large audiences. So they've got, uh, um, you know, their own kind of, they build their own audiences. And you, if you can get one of these young people, so you're reaching a few million people. So usually it's a very lighthearted material, you know, people doing dances and people speaking about their uh, whatever, buying the latest clothes and all of that. So it's mostly an apolitical crowd that, uh, um turns to TikTok. So as a result, when you are trying to give uh, them a political message, so they're not really equipped to, um, most of them don't are not really equipped to handle it because uh, unlike Twitter or on Facebook, where if you post something, somebody can come in and challenge you if you post something that is misleading. Uh, on TikTok, that mechanism doesn't really exist. Something can go viral. And then even if you put out a video that is um, um, a reply to it, it's not necessarily going to the same people that the first video reached. So because of that, what happens is that you have um, um, the potential for um, reaching a lot of these people who generally, in fact, they take pride in being apolitical, that uh, um, it's it's much higher, that you they are... Um, they're an available audience and um, uh, what the Kremlin tried to do is that through some key influencers they tried to reach them and the evidence for this being a, a propaganda effort rather than the TikTokers themselves choosing to support the war you're suggesting is the fact that the scripts very often sound the same this isn't young people just spontaneously choosing to support the invasion of Ukraine yeah, because um, uh, you know, uh, somebody, I think it was uh, Medusa or somebody had actually put those uh, videos side by side. And uh, so when they were speaking, they were speaking the exact words, uh, same words. And uh, so it was very clear that it, um, all these TikTokers were speaking of the same script. And, and, and uh, I'm hearing some kind of a noise here. I don't know. Indeed, I, I can hear that as well, Idris. I'm not sure. That's where you are. It's it's not at my end, uh, I have to say. Um, let's hope it disappears, Idris. I'll come yeah. back to you in a moment, okay. and uh, I'll bring in uh, Peter Jukes, the executive editor of the Byline Times. And uh, Peter, I mentioned that the latest print episode of the Byline Times newspaper is out now, and it's got this uh, title of How the West Propped Up Putin. Idris is talking about various forms of information or disinformation, both to persuade the Russian public of the worth of the war in Ukraine. But also, we know that Putin has used disinformation globally as well. Talk to me, Peter, though, about how the West has been complicit in that information war. Hello, Peter, are you there? I think we're having difficulty uh, getting hold of uh, Peter at the moment. I'm not quite sure uh, what's going on. Let's try and uh, bring back Idris. Idris, is your uh, is your line cleared any since the last time we spoke? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to know that wasn't me. So <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I'm clear. Hopefully, yeah. I don't think it's me either. Yeah. It's just one of these things that we get when we're using technology like this. It's just one of those things uh, that uh, happens. Um, so Idris, we, you, you talked about soapbox. Tell me a little bit more about that then. Yeah, that was an interesting initiative because it was uh, when it, it initially emerged. So they um, they were very reluctant to reveal their um, their links to uh, the 
call Russian propaganda apparatus. And um, um, what happened is that uh, actually uh, a journalist, uh, Charles Davis, did the investigation. And what he found was that there was a parent company called Mafic through which a lot of these fronts were established. And um, But the, it, the positioning was interesting because they positioned themselves as this community-based grassroots initiative. And um, um, they would pick up many left-wing causes and um, and do it well. So it was sophisticated and it was done well. And in fact, I had this very interesting conversation with somebody who was um, um, who was a very committed um, advocate for refugees, has worked with refugees for a long time. And um, so when the person shared um, this infographic from um, from soapbox, so I had this conversation. I asked that uh, you know that do you know that this is coming from the Kremlin and maybe not a good idea to be sharing that uh, at a time when Russia is um, involved in this major invasion of a uh, neighboring country. So um, the the response was quite interesting because uh, uh, the person said that, well, I have worked with them in um, when they were in, in Greece and they were really, um, you know, that they seemed like completely sincere and they did really good work. And I had to say that, but do you not see the cynicism here? Because Russia was uh, displacing all these Syrian refugees at the time, and they were being forced from their homes. And then Russian media shows up in Lesbos, gives obviously a completely sympathetic coverage, and says, that, "Look at how horribly the Europeans are treating these refugees." And you know, because it works, it aligns very neatly with uh, the story that they are trying to tell. So there was a. Um, there was this element of uh, sophistication to it that um, um, you actually come and pick stories and sh- report on them completely sympathetically and uh, gain an audience with uh, people who do care about these issues. And I think that that's working rather well even now because there are some real issues you know, with, related to refugees, the double standards in the treatment of refugees, or even within refugees, there were issues of racism and you know how some refugees were treated better than others. So... What they do is they would pick on these um, aspects and they would then magnify them. And so these issues start um, um, defining the whole crisis. So I think that in that respect, um, it was a rather sophisticated operation. It was targeted very self-consciously at uh, a progressive left-wing audience. And this opportunism is a key to Russian disinformation as well. You mentioned that in the current conflict, you've got this group called the Azov. You've written about this for the Byline Times. Now, the Azov are a a group who are very questionable, to say the least. Amongst their membership, they're a paramilitary group who who have been a, a, a vital part of the the pushback against Russia, but there is a suggestion that a large number of their membership have far-right or neo-Nazi sympathies, and on another occasion, at another time, they may well be worth investigation in their own right, but Mm. they have been used by Putin, their existence has been used by Putin to justify his claim that he's seeking to eradicate Ukraine of Nazism. Yeah, it's... uh, it's so this was very similar to what uh, Putin did when he intervened in Syria, because um, the um, 
ostensible or the um, the kind of cover story was that Putin is, is intervening in Syria to fight ISIS, except, um, um, you know, Carter uh, Center and um, Jane's also, they were keeping track of where the bombings were occurring. And um, it was very clear that uh, for the first almost a year, um, Russian Air Force barely touched ISIS. In fact, while Russia intervened, ISIS took Palmyra twice. And uh, because the entire focus of the Russian intervention was the anti-Assad rebels, um, they weren't, in fact, too concerned about ISIS. In fact, ISIS was quite useful to them because they were fighting the anti-Assad rebels. So um, they were weakening, you know, Assad's enemies. So ISIS was, in fact, useful to them. So they were not bombing them until they had neutralized the anti-Assad rebels, and then they went on to um, ISIS. So here, the the ostensible kind of story was that they are denazifying, and they're coming in to, because of this Azov. I mean, the thing about Azov, as, as you say, it's very um, dubious, and nobody should try to sugarcoat it. Uh, in fact, even as late as 2019, Times uh, did a, Time magazine did a pretty good kind of coverage of that. So some of the claims that they have somehow been integrated into the European, uh, sorry, into the Ukrainian army and uh, are no longer a political force that are not really true. I mean, they are, they remain uh, um, something that, you know, people will have to be concerned about in the future, Ukrainians particularly. So, but the thing is that they are, uh, the numbers are really small. And it's the same as what happened with uh, uh, when they kept on, when Aleppo was being assaulted, they kept on saying that they are there to fight Al-Qaeda, except later on when the UN published its report, out of the six to 8,000 fighters, 150 were Al-Qaeda. So that's like about, uh, you know, uh, uh, almost like 1%, 1, 1. 1.5 or so percent of uh, um, this, this the entire force. So... Um, same thing is happening over here that they're inflating the numbers of this small um, group and which doesn't define the Ukrainians and it's a very kind of a small outfit, but it's very useful. It's very convenient for them to focus on this. And um, um, and that way, you know, they can justify it to themselves and also to their soldiers. They are being told that, you know, most of the soldiers are told given very little information and they're sent off and they are told that, well, they are there to fight these Nazis, and the Nazis are somehow, again, under at war with uh, Russian speakers. And um, so it, it works well as a rationale, but um, it's just, um, it's another one of those cover stories, because, you know, that even if they were fighting as of right now, they're bombing cities. And um, um, so that cover story just falls apart, because the actions never um, match up to the supposed intention which brought them into um, into Ukraine. Fascinating insight. Idris, stay with us, if you would. That's Idris Ahmed. You're listening to Byline Radio. My name's Adrian Goldberg. If you want to join in and you're listening live via your Twitter app on the phone, there's a little microphone icon in the bottom left. You might want to have a, a comment to make or a question to ask. If you do, by all means, as long as it's intelligent and to the point, we'd welcome you on board. And don't forget, we are partnering with the Byline Times. That's where we come from, really. And in case you don't know, that's a monthly newspaper that report without fear or favour on both UK and global news. No oligarch behind us, no corporate interest. We rely on ordinary people taking out a subscription, but they're £39 a month for a byline subscription or maybe even a membership. Uh, we'll not only get you that brilliant monthly newspaper, but you'll also be helping to support Byline Times podcast, which is where Byline Radio is rebroadcast. Byline Radio 
and Byline TV and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. So your money does go a long way. You can check out bylinetimes.com as well for details on how to subscribe. Let's bring in Peter Jukes. Peter is the co-founder and executive editor of the Byline Times. And Peter, Idris has been giving us a very good idea of how Russian information and disinformation is working on the ground. But the West, as I mentioned earlier, has been complicit in this for many years. Just talk us through some of the the ways in which that has happened and which are exposed in the latest Byline Times print edition. Um, yeah, you're, you're complicit uh, in disinformation too, Adrian, because it's £39 a year for Byline Times. I thought that's what I said, didn't I? No, you said a month. I think you said oh, a month. Oh, did I? All right. Okay. And, and, well. and apologies for the poor quality of sound. And I'm actually at a, and there's a helicopter going overhead, a conference, a meeting on disinformation with Bill Browder uh, and various uh, some government officials, all kinds of people, experts in this domain. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing has been the way, and I, Dominic Grieve has also just given a talk, is the way that we've been supine to this eight-year-long war. You know, when I came back from Kiev uh, a, a few months after the Maidan, I went there and came back, I was being told by friends, oh, but it's full of neo-Nazis. And as Idris points out, uh, there was a maximum of somewhere between 100 and 2,000 Azov battalion in a, you know, an army and, uh, you know, national defense force of like two or 300,000. At the last elections, the far right got less than 2%. The Wagner group, big mercenaries for Putin. The founder actually where has a swastika on his neck. So, yes, our, our media e- ecosystem has been weak. I mean, I've, you know the story. I'm sure people know the story of Carol Cadwallader, the legal threats and still going through a libel trial she has had from Aaron Banks when I helped her and got the emails that documented his many undisclosed meetings with the Russian embassy and leave you with the Russian embassy and the one up to Brexit to talk about coordinating messaging, talk about golden diamond deals and things like that. That was very difficult to report. Some of that did come out, but generally most of it gets got suppressed. I mean, partly it's benign. People think it's a conspiracy theory. Surely Putin doesn't want to invade the West, doesn't really want Ukraine. is is, you know, rattling his sabers. It's all about positioning. But as, you know, intelligence agencies knew, the U.S. knew, the U.S. Army knew this was a long campaign and information warfare in preparation and, you know, in real warfare as well in Ukraine and Syria and Georgia. And I suppose we couldn't believe it. But the other element is that there is an oligarchical tendency in our culture, a love of bling, money, rich Russians bearing gifts. A lot of people are suborned by it, attracted by it. You know, you labor to Boris Johnson. Uh, you know, they're in, in, incredibly relaxed with getting on the yachts of a Russian oligarch and that oligarch funding a football team, funding a museum, funding a university. And uh, they appealed in a targeted way to their own inequalities and corruptions, mainly on the right, mainly on the Conservative Party, but I think also a kind of old Stalinist leaning on the left or sympathy for anybody who took on U.S. imperialism and and a blindness to Russian imperialism. So money, ideology, compromise, and ego. A lot of people are invested in, in, oh, Putin's not a threat. And And I think... We all are waking up 
to a new world. The one thing I say from this conference, which is really interesting, is that ha- that everything is just brilliantly documented. Read this piece on byline times about syria and the fake actors and the terrible story of the white helmets which is just such a tragedy but when it came to maria paul um the bombing of the maternity hospital russia you know came up and all their agents for this year oh they're all actors fake actors but it didn't work why because of information against disinformation, information from people like Idris, like Bellingcat, who exposed these lies in the past, and to the credit of the US and UK governments, them giving up all the intelligence for two months, saying, no, look, they're going to invade, they're going to invade, they're going to invade. You know, unlike Iraq, where they, you know, they believe their own Saddam's misinformation, their own misinformation. Here, they've come much more clean of the sources and got ahead of the game. And I think that's my conclusion of this. You don't fight disinformation with more disinformation. You fight it with the truth. One thing that you identify, Idris, as a change between the Ukraine war and the Syrian war is the ability to use open source data to demonstrate that some of this disinformation is false. Click on your microphone there, Idris, to talk to us. Yeah, sorry. I was, <laughs> yeah, so um, I think that that was kind of uh, um, the Syrian war could not have been reported any other way because uh, at the very beginning, the regime sent this very clear message when they killed Marie Colvin that um, um, you will not be welcome here unless you come on a regime visa and are accompanied by regime minders. So over the years, the visa was restricted to some um, friendly journalists and most people just couldn't visit. And the people who did visit and wrote critically, they never got the visa again. So um, because of that, what happened is that many of the CJs and many of these, um, um, the um, things that were happening in places which were inaccessible to journalists could only be seen or reports could could only be um, um, could only come out of there through whatever people were recording on their cell phones and what they were witnessing and uh, but that also obviously creates another the, this room for disinformation so uh, it became critical that there was somebody outside who was parsing through through this information verifying the location timing and everything and confirming that this incident did happen at the location it's claimed to have happened and then also finding multiple um, um, angles into the same incident and multiple ways to confirm what has happened and to corroborate. And I think that that's where, um, um, you know, credit to Elliot Higgins that who, um, who pioneered many of the techniques and um, Bellingcat, this extraordinary work all the way back from, in fact, that's how I had first met Peter and uh, Elliot together at a Google's Ideas thing back in 2013. And um, so, it was really essential at this time when there was no other way of corroborating incidents that were occurring and especially when uh, the chemical attack happened. So um, over the years, um, the open source methods became mature and um, they were more and more uh, people started um, getting involved and Bellingcat itself became this kind of a magnet for attracting all this this talent of uh, all these people who had this kind of surplus energy and which they were willing to put into this can be very laborious work 
and they were able to put that into it. And they brought a kind of precision to reporting, which was absent. And I, I, we, the biggest clash of that happened when, um, you know, the celebrated journalists like Seymour Hirsch went in and they wrote stories which, uh, you know, turned out to be absolute nonsense. And uh, they were just fed information by their dubious sources. And whereas here, verifiably being shown that what has occurred and where the missiles came from, which bombed um, these two neighborhoods in which the chemical attack had, uh, had happened. So I think that the biggest, um, uh, the thing that distinguished this type of journalism, the open source method was its transparency, that um, if you have doubts, okay, go and here are the coordinates, here is the map and go and try to look for yourself. And so everybody could see that, well, here is the information confirming um, a claim or also, because in, in this case, eyewitness testimonies. Because one of the struggles in many of these conflicts is, uh, one of the AP journalists recent, uh, recently said that, who made out of um, um, Mariupol, that uh, one of the aims um, that Ukrainians put their lives at risk to get this journal these journalists out, they said to him that, well, it's important for you to go out and tell the story because if we, we, we are witnessing things and we can speak about it, but that gets dismissed. And it is, unfortunately, the truth. Same thing had happened in Syria when Paul Conroy got injured. That uh, it's, I, I think it was 18 activists died in his evacuation because they thought it was that important for this person to go out and tell that story. It so much depended on, on the, uh, the journalists and their ability to witness. And I think that that was one of the big challenges that uh, um, open source journalism has been, in many respects, able to um, overcome. So, so I think that that knowledge has been immensely important in this conflict because of, it did two things. One is obviously um, uh, it put you know the perpetrators on notice that whatever they do, it will be witnessed by somebody, and it will be then tied to them. The second thing it did is uh, also it made the national intelligence agencies more agile, that uh, they have to now cut through their unnecessary red tape and classification systems, which used to withhold their information or sources for so long that it would become irrelevant, because by that time, the other side would have seeded this information to such a level that, you know, even if you speak the truth later on, it, it is just one more claim among so many others. So in this instance, um, even the U.S. intelligence was ahead of the game. It was giving warnings ahead of the game. And in many ways, it may have even thwarted many of the uh, things that it warned about, that some of the actions that the Kremlin was considering, and then they didn't follow through. And Idris, you mentioned this example from Syria. This was kind of pre-Bellingcat, pre the age of people being able to use open source data to verify facts. And this story, which did the rounds, that there's, there was a girl who was being used as a, an actor who was the supposed victim in a number of these atrocities. And it was used by Russia and supporters of Russia to spin this narrative that some of the awful events in Syria were being staged for the cameras. And the, the evidence for that was the presence of this girl actor in a number of these tragedies. Now, eventually, this lie was debunked, but not before it had managed to get huge traction around the world. 
Yes, I think it's, uh, um, you know, we saw many instances of that happening. It started uh, uh, much earlier, but probably uh, some of the most prominent instances were when Aleppo was under siege and it was uh, being annihilated. So um, there was a young girl who started um, uh, tweeting uh, about uh, help by her parents. So she started tweeting about this whole incident. And so immediately all these stories went around that this is a crisis actor. She's probably not even in Aleppo and this whole thing is staged. And um, at that time, um, one of Bellingcat's investigations was immensely important. Um, uh, Nick Waters did this investigation where, um, and here also there's a question of uh, journalistic ethics, because I think to me, this was a very critical incident. Um, so, so many of us actually, uh, well, I won't say many, but some of us actually knew because we were in touch with this this girl's parent, mother, that, uh, and we knew that, well, people are real and they are there and all of that. We we knew that. But the information couldn't be revealed because the re- regime was actually actively trying to target. So Nick Waters did this whole investigation where he geolocated through images exactly where this girl is um, tweeting from, the images she had posted, which apartment block she lives in, which floor even from which she's, you know, taking the photographs. But they held on to the these this information because if they publish it, I mean, it's a nice scoop. But if you publish it, you're putting this girl's life life in danger. So meanwhile, the New York Times did a pretty irresponsible thing that they actually uh, did a story um, which um, promoted, in fact, the claim that this girl may not be real and, uh, you know, this is a kind of some kind of PR initiative. It was a highly responsible story. But Bellingcat held on to the information until the girl was safely out after the whole evacuation deal. And that's when it was finally published, confirming that this is where the girl was. This is how she um, accessed the Internet and all of that. Um, so they kept on doing this story saying that, well, a lot of these rescue videos that they are, uh, they are um, staged. Um, and one of the claims that they made in this way clever kind of uh, um, spectacle they organized at the UN offices in the in New York was they brought in this Canadian woman and she claimed that she was uh, um, Idris sorry your your line isn't brilliant I don't, I don't know if you can just move somewhere where you've got slightly better reception we, we're kind of getting your message but it is a, a little bit in and out afraid but uh, I think we certainly get the gist from this I'm going to bring in Darren in just a moment uh, but Peter Idris touches on something there which is the the credulity of certain western media outlets it can be difficult though can't it when you're presented with information which appears on the face of it to be true and you want to seem to be perhaps not siding with one side or another in a conflict it, 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 there can be this this fog of war for want of a better phrase oh and now peter's gone let's bring in darren hello darren how you doing uh, hello yeah, hi, Darren. Go on. You're on Byline Radio. What do you want How to say, we doing? How we doing? Um, I was yeah, going to say yeah, that um, <clears throat> the misinformation is absolutely disgusting, really, that it's been going on for so long. <clears throat> and it's it seems to be absolutely everywhere. So, really, the question I want to ask is, like, what can be done? What should be done? You know, because it seems as if, you know, most European countries, the the Russians have really done a number on us here. Most European countries seem to be infiltrated um, to a point that it's not just guys taking backhanders. You know, they must know what 
they were doing. So what should be done? What can be done? Because there's no way this can continue down the line. There needs to be a major, major shake-up here. Um, or we're all in serious trouble if we're not beyond the pa- the point at the minute, you know. It's pretty scary, to be honest, like when you look at what's happening. But um, and the other point I was going to say is, in the sh- that's in the long term, really. Um, in the short term, what could be done to get the r- truth out to Russians? If they've got stuff blocked left, right and centre, what I was thinking is to get everybody, anybody who has contacts to try and get VPNs, <clears throat> companies giving out free VPN for Russia so that they can bypass stuff to see, you know, independent um, media to try and get the truth as opposed to the Russian propaganda that they're being fed at the minute. You know, that's maybe something in the short term that could be done. But it's just it's just a mess, really, you know. Mm. Uh, Darren, stay there. Let, let me ask Idris about that then. So I- Idris, Darren, I think, makes two very good points and asks two very pertinent questions. One is, how can we help people in Russia get the truth? Would there be an argument for companies who issue VPNs somehow distributing them in Russia? But what can we in the West do as well to make sure that we are more on guard in future for this kind of mass disinformation? Well, I think one of the vulnerabilities which still hasn't been addressed is uh, that how the divisions within Western society, they get exploited for um, the, uh, Russia has been doing that uh, noticeably since 2015 and uh, did it um, you know, during key moments here during the um, the Brexit vote in the US during the Trump vote. And um, and it's even now, you can see that with broadcasts by people like Tucker Carlson, because the Russian message is very important in finding the cleavages within the society and trying to exploit by giving one side some kind of an argument that they can beat the other side with. And uh, probably, you know, the, the Carlson incident in the US is a good example. And uh, they also find people on the they are not necessarily um, ideologically, they tend to be more um, opportunistic. So they can find allies on the left, on the right. And um, so I think that for that reason, one of the recognitions has to be that um, um, there needs to be some kind of a consensus view within um, the West has to be developed, which uh, which accepts that, well, there are some things on which, for partisan advan- advantage, you're not going to compromise. And, um, uh, you know, that's easier said than done. I mean, because I don't think that Tucker Carlson's huge ratings and his favorability among people like, uh, you know, on the, on the right, that uh, anybody's going to see that because it's so useful for, to them for attacking the opposition. So I think we have that vulnerability and we have to recognize that within our societies that that will remain. It's not just new, you know, the Soviets also exploited many of these and many of them were legitimate issues like, uh, you know, when it was uh, a question of uh, racial inequality. So it's, you, it doesn't require, it doesn't, you don't need to be a propaganda genius to come in and simply highlight the cases of police brutality in the U.S., and you know, suddenly you have already given a whole lot of people reason to be very angry with the with the system. So I think that you know, one is 
probably that was one of the, um, well, there were not many advantages to the Cold War, but because of this type of contestation, societies at least had to be more conscious about how they presented themselves to the rest of the world. And um, so I think those vulnerabilities, so that's, a, that's more of a long-term project. But in terms of right now, how do you address um, this onslaught of propaganda? I think some of the things are being done which, are, which should have been done a long time ago, like labeling of these uh, um, you know, accounts which are clearly um, state-backed. But that still leaves us with the vulnerability of the people who are free agents, that who who kind of, uh, um, you know, as I was mentioning in the article, that propaganda tends to be parasitic and there are many willing hosts who carry the message forward. And those are the people we have to be more conscious of and aware of because they are within our own societies. And some of them are not, I don't think that, you know, somebody like uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald has to be paid. I don't think anybody pays him. He just, that's his politics and uh, he doesn't but he's not bothered by the fact that he's advancing uh, a hostile foreign states um, agenda so um, that problem exists but the labeling and the identification of many of the overt agents that has been useful the second thing is probably one of the most effective things that recently happened was that Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, uh, message because um, he has a huge following in, in, in Russia, including, I think he's one of the few people that Twitter on Twitter, the president's account follows. And so he's, um, um, he has, so it's really went around on, on V contact and other places. And so people were sharing that video and all over telegram. And so that was a very effective propaganda. Well, it's, messaging but yeah it is propaganda and it was very useful because it was reaching um the right audience and here is a person who did have this huge audience so i think we also need to have people with credibility and who have something worthwhile to say i don't um i'm not even sure that you know anybody prompted um Arnold Schwarzenegger to issue that message is so, in fact, uh, out of line with his own party right now. And uh, but I think that what he did was really um, a very important action and um, uh, unbidden. And he did something really extraordinary. And it was such a good message. It was a really well crafted message. And um, um, so that kind of messages reaches people. But yeah, I think one of the suggestions that Darren made. Um, it's hard to say whether that's going to be effective or not because sometimes people do not want to be told by others that somehow you are uninformed that let me, you know, um, a Westerner explain to you what's happening to you. You know, unless you have a credibility, you have credibility with them, that they have reason, some reason to trust you. Because otherwise, it's easy enough. You, every, anybody can join VK, you know, VContacta, and then you can go there and uh, post messages that which is... Um, you know, revealing the kind of facts that are being suppressed currently on Russian media. The only problem with that sometimes is that there's a potential for backlash. In 2004, when Bush was running for re-election, so I think Guardian had done this thing that uh, they got their readers to write a letter to an American in, in the U.S. explaining to them why they shouldn't vote for Bush. And, and that had a big backlash because many people just didn't want to hear why should a Brit be telling me who I should vote for or not. So I think that that's something that you have to do with it a bit more caution.
Yeah, no, that's a very interesting point. And it's, a, it's a very good example as well of, of how people don't like to be told that they are wrong. And in a sense, telling that they're wrong, if it comes from the wrong source, can reinforce their sense that they are right. Uh, I want to bring in uh, Peter Jukes again. And Peter... Idris was talking about this idea of trying to build a consensus in the West so that we're not so vulnerable to disinformation. But here in the UK, we have a situation where one of the key divisions in society is Brexit. And the EU referendum is long gone. The EU referendum was in 2016, so six years ago. Yet we still have senior politicians, I'm thinking of the Chancellor in yesterday's spring statement, his mini budget, pressing on those levers, pressing on those sore points to gain political advantage, even though we can now see that whatever your belief about leave or remain, the Brexit vote was something which gave succour to Putin and to Russia. Yeah, I call it the great Brexit compromise because... There was definitely, and you know, just this meeting talking about it today, uh, Russian influence interference in the referendum, whether it made a difference or not with a close vote, because the security services were not tasked to investigate, and they do not, unlike the theories of the deep state, try to act outside the ambit of a democratic government. It never was. And therefore, that meant that even though a lot of these, and a conservative politician, very contra Putin, if you like, very aware of Russian influence operations told me in 2017 when I attended an old parliamentary uh, group in the House of Commons, you know, which had been set up by Chris Bryant, Labour MP, he told me, yes, Russia is trying to influence things. Don't make it about Brexit. In 2018, Tom Watson was at the Byline Festival and said this is now four years ago. There should be an inquiry into Russian influence in our elections. Ignored by the Labour Party, wasn't in favour with the, with the uh, current leader then, and of course ignored by the Conservative Party. So we have this thing that Brexit was so precious, so important to political careers, particularly of people like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and Dominic Cummings, that everything should be ignored for that. Now, that is history. I, by the way, did not want an investigation into Russian interference and money, potentially, and definitely online operations, because I wanted to overturn the vote. I'd accepted the Brexit vote come 2016. It's only 2017 when Robert Mueller comes to London for his first indictment against the Trump aide, who's in London meeting a professor also in London, who I had an email from, who was going to talk, who was supposed to be a Russian agent, and he was about to meet Boris Johnson to talk about Brexit. It became clear to me, and is now very clear from analyses, both from Russian information sources, US Army analysis, that Brexit was a huge win for him. I it destabilized the EU, which was his key enemy after Ukraine and the Maidan. You remember those people in the Maidan, the hundred who died, wanted to join the EU, not some Eurasian Union. But that is all in the past. Let's be clear, whatever the rights and wrongs of Brexit, and people who may starve, they may be hungrier, they may be disaffected, it's not resulting in thousands of casualties every day. I'm not going to relitigate the EU referendum. I think it's a mistake, but I accept that has now happened and we won't go back. Well, even if we want to, will they have us back? 
But this is bigger. It's much bigger than that. And let's drop whether it's won the election. Just accept that there was a Putin operation on that. There was a Putin occupation of our upper aristocratic classes through oligarchy. And because now it's life or death. Now it's, I hate this exaggeration of World War Three. I hate that. I don't think there's much threat of a nuclear strike, but Putin has made it clear. His spokespeople have made it clear. He's in a war against the West. And what is the threat from Ukraine? Ukraine's never going to invade Russia. Ukraine poses no threat to Russia. What it is, it poses an existential example of how to avoid kleptocracy of a different way, a more democratic way, an anti-corrupt way. And he cannot abide that because that threatens his his model. And I think, you know, I don't care if you're Brexiteer, Remainer, somewhere in between. We're now in a fight for or other people are shedding their blood. But we are in a fight for liberal democracy, not liberal as in Lib Dem or liberal. The, the rules we've abided by for 100 years, maybe 200 of human rights of free and fair elections. Maybe that's only 100 year old. You know, this engages us all. So they may still play the Brexit game. And they are still. Boris Johnson famously said, oh, the people of Ukraine a bit like Brexit. And he had to, you know, the, the former president of Ukraine criticized him for this because those people died in the Maidan to be part of you. Don't politicize it in an old battle. That's gone. The stakes are now much higher. Mm. But I suppose my point, Peter, is, and drawing on from what Idris said, is that certainly at the top of the government, there is an unwillingness to kind of say, okay, things have moved on. We are now in a different situation. We are not refighting the battle of Brexit. As you say, Brexit is over and done with in terms of the referendum, but in terms of investigating what happened and in terms of accepting that there was an attempt, however successful or otherwise, by the Russians to meddle with our democracy, that information, that insight still hasn't been taken on at the top of our political establishment. Yes, and in that way, having been all sort of let's all join Kumbaya together on the same side against Putin, they let us down for eight years, let the Ukrainians down, and us down for four. They allowed the Trojan horse of money to come in over 20 years, but more than anything, turned a blind eye. And as I said, partly ideological alignment with Putin, because he funds a lot of these groups and his oligarchs, very right-wing, anti-abortion, anti-women's rights. There is an alignment, more obvious in the United States, where the Republican Party has more in common with Putin than they do with Joe Biden. This has to be fought at every level. And yeah, I agree. There needs to be, as Tom Watson asked for four years ago, deputy leader of the Labour Party, completely ignored, an inquiry. But the press wouldn't cover it because the press, as we know, most of the non-domomers were for Brexit for whatever reason. And even the ones which were for Remain, like the Lebanese, the Evening Standard, the Independent, were actually for, you know, supporting the annexation of Crimea. Oh, maybe as Lebedev, Alexander Lebedev, the um, son of the owner of the uh, Independent Standard, tweeted out, oh, maybe... You know, Litvinenko wasn't poisoned by Russian polonium. Maybe it's something else. We cannot go on with that kind, those kind of lies in our midst, because these aren't lies like, you know, you know, I'm six or six tall or I'm worth this amount of money. These are lies about death, about why people have died and why they're going to die. 
it's it's you know it's it's more than propaganda it's lethal misinformation because yeah. if you uh, tell you people mean, you oh mean, yeah they're mean, all egg, Nazis. You mean, sorry peter you mean egveni lebedev uh, <laughs> yeah. the son of alexander lebedev uh, let's bring in yeah, sorry, original, uh, sorry. yeah yeah let, let, let's bring in original griffin i'm i'm conscious um, both you and idris uh, will uh, have very important things to do so we'll we'll end this in about 10 minutes time but i'm keen to get as many voices as possible as i can on air before then uh, original griffin hello welcome to byline radio Hi, um, uh, can you hear me? Yeah, loud and clear. Go on. Okay, great. Yeah, um, this is a topic that, um, well, there's two parts to my comment. But firstly, uh, I'm obviously British, but I've lived in New York for 20 years. I work as a media consultant. My husband was a journalist. Um, and uh, in fact, he wrote a big feature about Russian oligarchs in about 2007 for Vanity Fair. Now, um, he got paid for this story three times over by the London and the Italian editions. And it never ran. And it wasn't until about two years later that we found out, actually through the office of Vanity Fair, of Vanity Fair in London, that um, as soon as they started fact-checking for the story, they had put the heavies on the entire Condé Nast operation, threatening to pull out all of their advertising from the Russia edition um, to declare Condé Nast an enemy of the foreign state. And at that time, you know, Condé Nast was really pushing into all of its foreign editions, and that was an important market for it. So instead, they just killed the piece and it never ran. And that kind of like soft kind of acquiescence is exactly the kind of stuff that got us to where we are, permitting Russia to um, commit all these malignancies against our values, particularly in the press and the media, is a real problem. And it started long before the disinformation. So as soon as 2016 rolled around, I was on high alert. Like I, and I think like for the lone voices like yourselves that have really been trying to kind of call the whistle and they've done an excellent job about making it the there's a real difference between misinformation and propaganda and we're so conditioned to understand what propaganda is and that you know it's a positive message against them you know from a malignant force to try and make you think better of them disinformation is very 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 different and it's intended to confuse you so anything is fair game with disinformation the moment any anything comes up any matter they will seize on that and push it every different way till Sunday so that nothing feels true. Anyway, that was all I wanted to say. Thank you. Well, so that's much. very, uh, that's very, that's very Oh, hello. Is the dog joining in now? <laughs> I don't know whose dog that is. It's not mine. Just mine, to say, sorry. by the way. Oh, it's okay. Uh, what's the dog's name? Funnily enough, the dog's name is Oleg. He came from Russia. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, maybe he's uh, he's got a point of disinformation to make. I don't know. <laughs> he did come microchip, so we've always wondered. <laughs> he's been paid by Putin. You wait and see. Original Griffin, thank you very much indeed. And, uh, of course, if anybody from Condé Nast is listening or either live on Byline Radio or hears this via the Byline Times podcast and wants to put their side of that story, we would love to hear from you. More than happy always to hear the other side of a story. Obviously, that call has come on. We can't control what they say. But if Condé Nast do wish to challenge it, by all means, please come on and tell us here at Byline Radio. Um, Idris, I'm just going to give a, a final thought to you in terms of where we go from here, because I mentioned to Peter that the British establishment does not appear willing to take on these insights. But at Byline Times, we've been reporting about misinformation, disinformation for a number of years. You've come on board with your terrific article. How do we make sure that this 
understanding of what's going on in the world is more widely understood? Well, I think we, we have to probably take a lesson from uh, the the states, which are very much the frontline states. Um, Ukraine was one of them. The Baltic states are um, there, and then Finland, because they've taken the threat of disinformation as an existential one, and they have taken measures going all the way to uh, education and schools, and they have been quite effective. And uh, um, so there, there are organizations in Ukraine like Stop Fake, and uh, there are similar initiatives in um, across the Baltic countries. Um, and because they have been exposed to this for far longer, beginning in the early nineties, and so um, I think that uh, there's a lot of things that we can learn from them. And um, and one of the points your last speaker raised was a very important one because propaganda usually has uh, two functions. One is the positive function of persuasion and the second one is the negative function of obfuscation. When Because propaganda ultimately is about action, either getting you to do something or getting you to or, or um, stopping you from doing something. So um, in the case of action, they persuade you. In the case of um, inaction, when the, your inaction is required, so then obfuscation, they create doubt, and they create, that's where um, all this seeding of um, obviously sometimes fake stories is important because it's a way of making truth become indistinguishable from all these false claims. So I think that if we create that kind of resilience, and uh, we also create this kind of um, a way for individuals to just understand that what kind of, uh, um, you know, their, their kind of cognitive vulnerabilities which are being exploited or their political kind of um, sensitivities which are being exploited. So there will be a greater sensitivity that people will be more conscious of propaganda without becoming paranoid because we have one of the biggest distinctions we have lost. And that's why we have so much conspiracism. You know, conspiracism always take the founder of, well, I'm a critical thinker, every conspiracy theory says. And, but the thing is that they have lost the distinction between cynicism and skepticism. We need skepticism and we need to be able to distinguish it from, from cynicism. But building resilience of citizens through education, through school, that's a really interesting takeaway point. I'm going to give a final word to Goa Cricket. Hello, Goa Cricket. Welcome to Byline Radio. What's your comment? I just want to talk about um, lying, really, and the fact that it's sort of um, habit-forming and more of a culture. So if you thought about the pressure put on our politicians, not naming any, um, it puts some, it's sort of increasing, is it? You start with little ones and then it becomes habit-forming, then you get bigger ones, and ultimately, ultimately it's just to undermine the poor sucker that's got roped into it. Um, the problem we have, if Boris starts lying like it's a habit, then everyone's got to follow him. All his top civil servants got to follow him. We're seeing it now. And that's what causes the damage. And that is why, ultimately, those around him are not really interested about digging it up because half of them have had to chip in anyway. The very idea that Boris Johnson would be a liar, I find... Frankly, astonishing. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, well, it's more the it's more the effects of his lying that is more of the issue. His yeah, stupid no, no, lying no, no, is not the, the issue. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I take your point about the corrosive 
influence uh, of line, and I, I think it's a fair one as well. Thank you for joining in. Uh, this no, has no. been Byline Radio. Thank you to everybody who's taken part. Thank you very much indeed for Idris Ahmed. Really good to speak to you, Idris. Thank you. Thank you to Byline Times executive editor and co-founder Peter Jukes. Thanks to all of you who've taken time as well to make a comment. If you're listening to this live on Byline Radio or if you're listening to this back on Catch Up via Byline Times podcast, please don't forget that our work is all supported by subscriptions and memberships to the Byline Times, which, as Peter Jukes correctly pointed out, does not cost £39 a month. It costs £39 a year, which is rather less. So uh, if you can afford it, even in these very uh, cash-strapped times, please do so. It keeps us all in a job and um, allows us to broadcast without fear or without favour. We'll be back again at noon tomorrow. Thanks, everybody, for joining in. We'll see you then.